Ruth is Evans. Hello. You're quite an odd phenomenon for this podcast for Martian Meets because you're certainly one of the more famous people that we've had on it and most well-known. But also this podcast is generally about stand-up and it's kind of stand-up comedians and that's why you're here is to talk about stand-up shows but that's not what you're most well-known for. No, I mean, I'm a dancer. So, <laughs> as we now know, well, I want to talk about all the. There's loads of stuff you've done, but is stand up your main love? Is that your? Yeah, drive? I mean, it's, it's interesting because I grew up loving stand up. Every Christmas, I mean, I think most of your listeners will have had the same thing, that for Christmases gone by, mums and dads will get a stand up DVD now, maybe a video when I was growing up. So every Christmas we watched Billy Connolly and Victoria Wood and stuff like that. And then there was the kind of alternative comic boom in the mid-80s. So you started seeing people like Ben Elton and, and Jasper Carrot was a bit before that, but he was one of the big presences uh, doing stand-up on telly. And always loved it. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. And then basically started going out with a girl who was a comedy critic and watched lots of the greats and thought, well, there's no point in me ever doing this because I'll never be that good. And then we went to a lot of open mic nights and I thought, well, I'm never going to be that terrible. So that was basically enough to give me a kick up the bum and think, well, I'll give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? And then really just I've ridden it out. Like there's, I know what you mean about a bit of an odd thing because really for me to be well-known and do stand-up, I should have done the required Edinburgh shows and the the previews and, and a lot of the sort of headline spots and what have you that I just haven't done. Well, did you start out doing that? What was it, what, do you remember your very first kick? Yeah, it was in um, Hampstead. And I can't remember the name of the pub now. But, yeah, I mean, it was awful. I did five minutes and my left leg shook like Elvis throughout. But the one thing that went really well in it was somebody heckled me and the things that I hadn't planned to say were better than the things I had planned to say by a mile. And so, really, I then carried on and did sort of sets and bits and pieces, got into the final of So You Think You're Funny. And it was a good final as well. It was yeah. like you and Rod Gilbert and Mark yeah. Watson and Greg, Greg Davies. Davies. Yeah, uh, Nina Conti. You know, some really, really brilliant people in it. And I think I ultimately I got quite lucky in the heats. So I did one and died on my ring. Just did hated you? it. Yeah, hated it. Because all my material was aimed at playing 40 people in a... Well, you know, 40. 14 people in a room in an open mic club somewhere in the nether regions of London and suddenly walking out having been introduced by Bill Bailey in front of 600 people I just didn't have a clue what I was doing opened with the line I'm sorry I shouldn't really be here I'm not really a comedian the definition of a comedian is someone who makes people laugh and I've never done that still you know what they say lucky 209th gig which is an all right opening line in Balham on a Tuesday but in front of sort of 600 people who are all paid money to see the final, basically the 12 best people who are currently operating in the country with little experience, just was met with sort of, no, you haven't. And I never picked it up again from there. I didn't, it just killed me. So I came back from that and thought, well, that's me done. I'm oh, going to really? give that up. Yeah. And then what happened? A friend of mine said, uh, I've opened this club, would you compare it for me? And because I always like the more off the cuff stuff, I thought, well, comparing I can do. And that was it. Once I started comparing, it all started to fall into place a lot more. But then you started doing telly... Within about two years. What was the first thing that you did? Well, I worked at the Science Museum at the time, 
and was enjoying that a lot. What were you doing there? Well, I was explaining science to kids in the interactive galleries. And it was a good time, although it coincided with that time in my 20s where I mainly drank. Uh, really, I, if I had a profession, it was drinking. And then I to fund that. I worked at the Science Museum. And stand-up, of course, dovetailed quite neatly into that because you mainly went to pubs. And either you got paid enough for a few beers or at really great gigs, they'd actually give you beers. So that was enough to really keep me going. But then did you breathe beery fumes over the children every day? Uh, yeah, probably. Certainly, I breakfast was the forerunner to Barocca and Resolve Extra. And I'd have that in my locker at work. So I'd knock those back and then go and explain plasma. So that was that, and then oh, that was the other thing I started doing at the science museum was a thing called punk science, because I twigged that by doing stand up and doing these science shows for kids, actually audiences would go for the same experiments we were doing for kids, but if you presented them in a more grown up way. And I took that out a couple of times and took senior people from the museum with me and said, you know, this whole we can't get people between 18 and 30 to come to our museum watch and they did and it worked and then they said yeah we could do that and then they put so much red tape on the business of doing it i mean it's not really their fault because they were never looking to employ let's have an official museum team of comedians but that was sort of what it ended up being there were four of us who started working on science shows for grown-ups and making those funny which sounds like a brilliant idea yeah and i think had a lot more scope but we kind of needed to be free of the day-to-day in order to really cut loose and do it and it's very hard for a government-funded institution to go yeah I'm sure it'll all be fine don't worry about it off you go but we did some good stuff and then when I left they went on and did Edinburgh and they did stuff for the uh, the British Council where they take different artists around the world so it did go places and they had their own series and books out and things like that so it was a good thing to have started but I did, somebody from the BBC got in touch and said, we're looking to do a science show. You seem to be able to make science funny. I did a pilot for something that was horrible, but the guy at BBC Three liked me in it. And six months later, they were doing a big talent search for presenters on BBC Three. And uh, he remembered me from that. So when he saw my sort of tester, he said, yeah, I really like this guy. And I got down to the last six, which was the team that they then put on air. And this was for... Destination Three. It was basically meant to be T4 and run for a thousand years. And this was with Justin Lee Collins? Justin Lee Collins, Tom Price, who was then in uh, Torchwood as the Welsh copper, Anita Rani, who you may now see on Watchdog and occasionally The One Show, and and a couple of other girls who were fantastic, uh, Radhika and Nickby, and Sarah Hendy. But that was six of us, and we all moved to Manchester. It was all terribly exciting. And then within three weeks, they decided it probably wasn't going to work. That's true. So we then all moved back down from Manchester. But by that point, I'd quit the job at the Science Museum and it felt like a bit of a climb down to go back. So uh, I had a stand-up agent and just said, you know, I was sort of peeing about with this before. You really are now going to have to fill my diary because this is now what I do for a living. But then on the back of the Destination 3 thing, I got some stuff for Glastonbury, which led to stuff for Top of the Pops. So I remember that was the first time I ever encountered you was on Top of the Pops. And I remember being confused by it pleasantly surprised but confused in that usually if you see a presenter that you don't know on something like Top of the Pops yeah then 
uh, it's you know like an, an eighteen-year-old with her ass hanging out of yes. trousers, and you came on and you weren't that, and you were funny and sort of, a bit <laughs> and it was it was very confusing at the time. Yeah, uh, well, I think a lot of people found it quite confusing. <laughs> but this was top of the pops in its sort of death. Yeah, row, yeah, yeah. This was its death rattle. Robin Ince once told me I killed top of the pops. And my only defence was that I hadn't. I was just stood near it when it died. <laughs> but that must have been amazing to do. Yes. Yeah. I mean, um, I presented that with Fern Cotton and whatever people feel about Fern, she loves her music. I mean, absolutely loves it. And I think the other perception is if you're on telly, you know, you're, you're getting paid good money. Well, we really weren't on that show. But her point was, the thing is, if they rang and asked her to do it for free, she would, like anybody would. So when they asked, it wasn't like, oh, is this good for my career? It was like, you want me to present some of the pubs? Are you mental? Of You know, like, what time do you need? I'll come now and just hang out until it's on. Yeah, so that was, it was really super. And she was really kind because she's been doing presenting since she was 16. So her understanding of how it all worked, she could have been really icy. And I've definitely worked with people who've done it a long time since who aren't particularly pleasant. They're much more selfish and self-centred. But she was really, really generous and just had a, a really nice kind of line on how to get that job done. So I've got a lot of time for Cotton. Well, and, you... I, and I'll tell XFM listeners here and now, she probably has more in common with your own rock and roll aspirations away from being Miss Goody Two-Shoes on Radio 1 than uh, I'm sure anybody would like to admit. So when you started, were you still quite green about presenting? Yeah. Were you terrified? Early on in stand-up, I twigged that nobody will die. Once you realise that really the worst that's going to come out of this is your ego will feel a bit bruised for a little while. If you can climb over your own ego, basically, then you think, well, why wouldn't I just give it a go? And that's really the only attitude I've ever had, which has meant now I've done some acting and I've you know, done some uh, hosting for things that aren't really comedy. And I wouldn't have done any of those things had it not been for the sense of, well, I'll give it a go, what's the worst that can happen? Well, in fact, off the back of that, you kind of, you got a, a few more presenting things like that, doing, you know, Tea in the Park and Reading and Leeds and the Brits backstage yep. coverage, and then started popping up on various, you know, like uh, The Apprentice, You're Fired and yeah. Law of the Playground. And then this ITV show with Paul Merton. Thank God you're here. Yeah, so in the interim, I was going for castings for things and bits and pieces, and I met a woman called Victoria Payne, who was trying to produce a pilot for E4. And then, just through knowing her, she was then, from producing this little pilot on E4, producing this huge Saturday night show with Paul Merton and Improv, and she went, I think you'd be really good on, on this show. Had you ever done Improv before? Uh, I'd, like, I did things at school, doing drama, but, like, yeah, not in terms of stand-up. But she asked me to be on it, and that was wicked. And then I got a phone call a couple of months later saying, we've, had a, we've done the pilot and we had a few problems with the warm-up. Paul wants it warmed up a certain way because he's worried that if you go too big, improv actually being quite a gentle thing that you've got to be kind of nurturing, if the warm-up comes out and it's like, everybody whoop and cheer! Then when somebody's sort of feeling their way around a joke a bit later on, the audience are like, this isn't exciting. So she said, we'd like to design a very specific warm-up for this. Would you come and do that? And then what that meant was I got to watch all the shows being filmed and was sort of able to gen up <laughs> on who did well and what they were doing to do it well. And so by the time mine rolled around, I felt fairly confident. And you do improv stuff now, right? Now I do, because one of the women who worked on Thank God You're Here 
then set up an improv troupe and went, you were really good, you should come and do it with us. So now I work with the London Comedy Improv. And how do you find improv compared to stand-up? Because the two worlds usually don't cross in that people who do improv don't tend to do stand-up. I mean, there are there are exceptions to that. So Phil Jupitus and Marcus Brigstock. I think it's very dependent on the sort of comedy brain you have. Some people are amazing at crafting jokes. Some people are better like Ross Noble, uh, just you know, going with what's happening in the room. I think if you've got that second sort of brain, it's not that hard to find at least a foothold in improv. Whereas if you like things more scripted and more controlled, then improv's probably not for you. Equally, people who really come from improv need it to be spontaneous and then aren't going to necessarily be able to get into stand-up as an industry because you need a reliable 10 minutes you're kind of selling to get you a 20 minutes that's reliable that then gets you from the middle spot to the opening spot to the headline slot. Some can, but for every one Ross Noble, there are a thousand who can't. And it presumably as well both helped and has been honed by your doing this show on Dave Argumental that you do with Marcus Brickstock. Yeah, uh, Thank God You're Here came before that. Yeah. And then Argumental came along. And Argumental, I think, really changed things for me because up until then, I was getting TV work as a presenter. I'd done this sort of odd thing in terms of Thank God You're Here, which was not really as a stand-up, in inverted commas, more somebody else who's going to play the game because it was other presenters on that game. Fern Britton did it, Vernon Kay did it, some people from Corrie had done it. So you still weren't really being cast as a stand-up comedian. And then uh, we did the pilot for Argumental, and I thought they were just having me on as a panellist to sort of goof off. And then the pilot got commissioned, and they said, no, you're the team captain, and you'll be on it every week. And that was then terrifying, because for anybody who hasn't seen Argumental, you're arguing against another stand-up, and then the audience vote who they think won the argument, but really it's who they think was funniest. So here I've gone from literally working Surbiton on a Wednesday for 80 quid or, you know, travelling backwards and forwards to Hull basically for the petrol money to suddenly being in a studio where somebody says, just write 20 minutes of new material and then rock down here at about half six and then people will vote whether what you've come up with is better than what Jimmy Carr's come up with in the last fortnight. And that is terrifying. And it just made me aware of what another level there was to people who were doing it. Because Jimmy Carr, Frankie Boyle, Sean Locke on the first series were just spotless. And they're so good and so quick that it made me feel like a proper pretender. And then it made me think, right, I need to really pull my socks up and do this properly. So by the time it came to the second series, I was pretty much flying. And then people were trying to book me as a comedian. But that jump between having a profile as a presenter then doing Argumental, which is an odd bit of casting, basically accelerated me through doing the Edinburgh shows and doing the previews, doing the headline spots, so that then by the time you've got profile, live club promoters think, well, if we book this guy, people will know who he is, so we'll stick him on as the headliner. So I am massively out of my depth. <laughs> but did you have material and stuff for doing a headline show? Not really. I still don't, really. And what's been a problem is that... Because I don't really have a spine, a career spine, like I never worked out who I was on stage. I was comparing, and that was all going brilliantly well, and I won a prize for comparing, the only prize the that there is in the country award, yeah. for comparing. So I knew I could do that, and then I thought, right, it's time to knock that on the head. Really, the Chortle Award was the thing that made me think, well, I've kind of done that now. If they said that I'm the best, then what else am I trying to prove? 
So I can either keep doing this for the rest of my life or try and put together some material, maybe look at doing a tour, maybe get a DVD out, all the things that the people I'm working with on Argumental are slowly becoming friends are doing. Second nature to them. So I'm thinking, oh, crumbs, I better buckle up here and buck my ideas up. But yeah, it just means that on stage, I, I kind of lack any real concept of who I am. So what's now come out is sort of a mixture of trying to offend people because I find that amusing and then being compromised by the fact that when people come and see me, they're expecting the nice man who did the lovely dance rather than somebody shouting at them. So I don't really know what I'm doing anymore. <laughs> well, do you... OK, let's talk about the dance. All this right. is the thing. So you did argumental, but then this is the thing that ramped everything up. Suddenly, things have changed. The which, game is different now. <laughs> which is the Let's Dance for Sport Relief. Yeah. And you did Cheryl Cole. That's right. Fight for this love. And you won. I did. Did they, like, have a list of songs and say, pick one and then... They sort of did, yeah. Basically, I was up a mountain with my family <laughs> and then my phone rang just as I was having a nice hot sandwich. And they said, would you like to do Let's Dance for Sport Relief? Now, I'd really enjoyed the previous Let's Dance, but moreover, Sport Relief and Comet Relief are the same thing. And, you know, I grew up same as you. You probably did the bake sale at school. You did the, you know, Mufti Day, the dressing up, 50p, whatever it was for Comet Relief. Everyone wears the red nose Exactly. So if Comet Relief asks you to do something, you do it. And I also worked on a show called Celebrity Juice. This is, it's on ITV2, but it's like really successful with Keith Lemon and yeah, Fern it's, Cotton, um, yeah, four series. Fern and Holly Willoughby. And are they moving it to ITV Main? I no, hear rumors. I don't think that's their plan. I think there have been lots of conversations about possibly doing that. But because it's actually been really successful on ITV2, I think ITV2 feel like, well, why are we going to hand that over to the Big Brother? Because we've grown this show, we've built it. And all we're doing by giving it to ITV1 is leaving ourselves a big hole in our uh, our schedule that we're going to fill with something that isn't going to get as many viewers as this. So I think they want to keep hold of it, and we're all quite happy making it for ITV2. Anyway, sorry, you were saying about that. Uh, but... Yeah, Keith Lemon, who hosts Celebrity Dukes, had done Let's Dance the Year Before and had said to me, were well, you not asked? <laughs> I'm like, dude, they're not asking me to do things like that. So again, when they asked, not only was it for comic relief, but it felt to me like somebody out there has gone, hey, I like that guy. So it was a bit of a feather in the cap then and good reasons for doing it. And then it was really just a case of what do I think I can make funny? And it was literally in my head between Single Ladies by Beyonce and Fight for This Love by Cheryl Cole. And I'd seen on YouTube the Justin Timberlake parody of Single Ladies and... Glee, I knew that you know they were doing parodies of it, and lots of people online had done sort of different things, but I hadn't really seen much with Cheryl Cole because she's a domestic star rather than an international star, and I thought, well, you've got more room there to make that your own, and truthfully, my little boy, it's his favourite song, and I've watched that video like a hundred times, and if you watch the video, it's mainly Cheryl Cole waving her arms and looking pretty. And then when it's not that, she's surrounded by backing dancers. And I thought this would be a piece of cake because all I have to do is just stand there sort of wiggling vaguely. And then when the backing dancers come out, I'll be slightly hidden by it all anyway. So that will work out fine. And then, of course, I get there and they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. We're not going to put in just the wiggling bit because that's boring. And the thing about the backing dancers is it's all in time with them. So if you go wrong, rather than just being out there on your own and nobody would be any the wiser, it will be shown up exactly where you've gone wrong. Does anybody look at the backing dance and go, that's not what he's doing? So it proved to be a harder thing than I thought it was. 
But it really came down to that. It came down to what did I think I could make funny? And then, sure enough, Katie Brand was doing Single Ladies, which, again, as a larger lady doing that parody, that was something that I don't think people had really seen. Whereas a man doing it, it was, you know, a thousand people on the internet have thought, oh, that'll be funny. So uh, I think it all worked out nicely in terms of what was picked. And then it was just a case of working my ass off, really. <laughs> was it much harder than you thought it yeah, would be? Yeah, I mean, I had to go to an osteopath. I, I, I was on a diet of ibuprofen, essentially. Was it really painful? Oh, yeah, because... The amount of kind of hip movement and odd stuttery movements are not natural movements to somebody who basically lounges around a lot. So your body is genuinely, your spine is finding positions that it doesn't normally find for four hours that day, which means you go to sleep and the next morning it's trying to move back where it knows it should be, and that is just pure pain. But rather than just going, well, I better sleep this off for a week, you instead have to get up and go in for another four hours and try and learn the next bit. And when I met Cheryl, I said to her, I'm sure that was all right for you. You were a dancer, but, you know, I, I found it really hard. And she went, no, the first time I learned that dance, it nearly killed us. <laughs> so seemingly it is a hard dance to do if you're not an actual sort of dancer-dancer whose body is used to moving in these various ways. But, yeah, not for me. For me, it was hard, really hurty hard. And she was a fan, wasn't she? She, well, I mean, that was the other thing. I, I think I had some sort of fairly lucky synchronicity because she was then in all the papers with the stuff with her and Ashley so then when I got up and did it there'd been like three weeks of PR about hey remember Cheryl Cole and here's a picture of her and stuff so I think it was in people's minds anyway but supposedly when I did the dance her mum and dad saw it and lots of her friends then texted her uh, I think she was in America at the time so she then looked at it on YouTube one of the uh, dancers that she works with was one of my backing dancers. So she's texted him and said, do tell him, I think he's really good. And then uh, when I did the actual Sport Relief night, she was there and came on at the end. And was did you know she was going to come on? No, I knew she was in the building. Because you sort of surprised. Yeah, if you watch that back on YouTube, basically I get to the end of the dance and then I'd been told by the floor manager in rehearsals at the end of this, Gary and Christine will walk over and uh, say to you, uh, you know, like, well done and thanks and this is the money that Let's Dance raised and what have you. So I'm like, fine. So I get to the end of the dance on the real thing and I look over and Gary and Christine are still over the other side of the studio. Then out of nowhere, there's this huge other round of applause and I think Gary and Christine have not remembered that they're meant to walk over here. They can't hear on their earpieces. So a thoughtful floor manager has thought, well, we can't just have dead silence here. Better whoop the audience up, keep the applause going while we frantically try and get going. So if you watch it, there's this other huge round of applause and you'll see me going, oh, come on, no, please. <laughs> like, I'm quite embarrassed by this round of applause for no reason. And then I feel a tap on my shoulder and I realise, oh, that's why the big round of applause, because the most famous woman in the country has just walked out <laughs> behind me and you've all lost your minds. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, she was she was a real doll and very sweet about the whole thing. And so there must have been quite a big effect that you must have noticed in terms of the stand-up, in terms of both size of audiences, but who those audiences were as well. Yeah, and again, you know, it's where I'm rubbish because having started to do sets before doing that dance where I was trying to be a bit angrier, a bit kind of punchier, a bit more uh, visceral... I then did that, and that audience that you're then exposed to wants to come and see the nice man who did the dance. And they don't really want to come and see somebody who's shouting at them. So now I do have people on Twitter saying, I can't wait to see you on Wednesday. By the way, I loved the dance. And that tells me, you have no idea what I do as a stand-up, but you're expecting to come and see the nice man who did the dance, and he's not going to be there. 
there's going to be a man shouting at you that God doesn't exist and that fellatio is the only possible route to world peace and, and not put it either of those things that politely. And do you ever temper it? Like, if you sense that the audience is a... I mean, I, again, I don't really have that backup of lots of material where I think, oh, I'll tell that joke rather than this joke. I have the material that I'm going to do. And what would be good is to take stock sit back a bit, write some stuff that is a bit more accessible and a bit less aggressive and do that instead. But because I'm then busy doing other things, I don't have that window to write the material to then go to the tryout nights and try it out and get it good so that when you're doing the big gig... So I figure better to do whatever I do at full throttle than something I'm working on at half pace because at least if people don't like it, they go, that is not what I was expecting at all. But then half the other people in the room will go, that was really good, than have everybody just come out going, mm, yeah. And you don't have the thing, just a habit of having done so much comparing, of just like a knee-jerk, like, I want you to like me. You know, yeah, no, I do compare, have that. I yeah. do have a, I want you to like me. Just as a compare, that's important in a way that it isn't necessarily. Absolutely, yeah. But the thing about comparing is it's quite a mechanical role. Like, you actually have aims and objectives as a compare that you don't have when you're an act. So you know that you've got to do 10 minutes before the first guy or 10 to 15 minutes before the first guy, that you've got to deal with any problems that are in the room, talk to the big groups that could be a problem if they feel that they're being ignored, get everybody facing the right way, explain the rules if they appear not to really understand the rules of not talking, get your phone off and all of that, get them all set up for it, then gently seg into a little bit of material so they're used to a different metre rather than just conversation, and then get them applauding, bring the first act onto the stage, boom. That's the mechanics of being a compare. With a stand-up, the mechanics are go on, 20 minutes later come off, and everybody should have enjoyed it as much as you were able to make them enjoy it. Well, that's not the same. <laughs> so if I feel that maybe there's a crowd that isn't in for the visceral, aggressive stuff... My only option then is to drop back down into talking to them. But then that's not my job. My job's to go out and do material. My job isn't to be the compare. If I wanted to do that, then I should take more comparing work, which I'm trying not to do. So it's kind of full circle, really. What kind of... I've seen you compare before, but I haven't seen you doing kind of stand-up sets. And obviously knowing you have this history of comparing, what kind of stuff do you like in terms of... A conversation I often have with people is off-the-cuff versus pre-prepared stuff yeah. and I have always preferred off-the-cuff stuff and it always feels like it's more clever if people can do it off-the-cuff but then at the same time there's a certain extent to which I think people might feel like oh well someone's paid money and so why should I just chat to the front row when they've paid money you know I should be doing something that I've really thought about and really sort of I mean that's it, put... isn't it? Um, for me the people who made me want to be a comedian really were Bill Hicks so they were the people that I watched when I was a teenager so it was uh, like the Mary Whitehouse experience where you had uh, Badil at the time and Rob Newman. The Hicks tapes were sort of passed around on cassette. If you, I mean, maybe you're a young person, you're a teenager listening to this now. Listen to the Hicks tapes because he's so opinionated and, he, and he's so unafraid that if you're intelligent and a teenager where you're not really cowed by mortgages and necessity and bills if you're still building who you are having somebody out there who's not afraid to tell you how that then should be is powerful stuff and that's really then what i wanted to be when i started stand up when i <laughs> before i did my first ever set i wrote what are the things i want to talk about racism poverty homophobia and they were all big things 
But you just are worthy at that point, and you, you're missing actually that really the job is to try and make people laugh. That if you wanted to work those things, maybe you want to be a politician, or maybe you want to be a speaker. But being a comedian is like, no, write jokes. Just tell jokes. Don't worry about what you're talking about. Just say funny stuff. And then once you've got the hang of that, use those skills to address a kind of bigger worldview. And I started to feel with Argumental that maybe I was getting to that point where I did want to say some things. So that's uh, ultimately kind of the point I'm at where I can do off the cuff reasonably well, but then what does that mean? Am I then going to do a tour where I just talk to the front row? Am I just going to do a tour where really I'm asking the audience questions in the hope that somebody will say the right thing that actually just dovetails me into a piece of material nicely? Or am I going to sit down and watch the Louis C.K. chewed up DVD or the Bill Hicks DVD or the Richard Pryor DVD and realise that at no point during all of that will they do anything other than address a specific thing that is happening in the audience rather than use them as a springboard to then just get material in. And it feels to me that the greats don't need to do that. The greats just get on with it. They give you the jokes that they wrote. With Argumental, haven't you had some weird backfiring? Wasn't there something where you argued a point because you had to and then someone... <laughs> yeah, not in any serious way, but they deliberately often will give you an argument that they know you feel exactly the opposite about. So uh, I had to argue that Jeremy Kyle was, you know, the best thing about the world or something like that. And so you do it and then they vote and then you, at that point, try and reveal your true feelings about it. But if people just watch the clip on YouTube and they don't realise that actually you were arguing something that you couldn't disagree with more, then they start, you know, getting in touch with Facebook and Twitter and things like that and say, hey... I really agree with you. A lot of people don't understand why Jeremy Kyle is as brilliant as he is. And, you know, I can only message back that they should probably kill themselves. It's never really backfired in a way where somebody's really been mortally offended. To be honest, the thing on YouTube that people are more offended by was a piece of material I used to do about Westlife. The comments underneath are uh, pretty, like, strong. Just, you know, people with names like, I love Kian. And I think, well, I don't... Not sure you're looking at this entirely without bias. <laughs> but I don't care, really. If you like Westlife, that's up to you. But don't be offended that other people might not or have another point of view. In fact, don't be offended by anything. If you live your life allowing yourself to be offended by things, life is going to be long and hard and ultimately fruitless. Do you think people get more easily offended now they're allowed to because of the current...? Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's that people get more offended because they're allowed to, but... We used to have a concept, I think, in our society that if you're offended, who gives a fuck? It's not a human right not to be offended. William Wilberforce, when he was arguing against slavery in 17-whatever-it-was, would have stood in the Houses of Parliament claiming slavery to be evil and wrong. Well, now we all are pretty certain slavery is evil and wrong. But at the time, there were people in the Houses of Parliament who had very reputable good names, good country estates, come from a long line of bloody good eggs. And he would have been saying to them, what you're doing is wrong. Now, if that's how you earn your money and, and you're a, a, an absolute member of society, how dare you, sir, come here and tell me? How dare you suggest that what I'm doing is anything other than God's work? How dare you? So he offended them. Now, had he thought it was their human right not to be offended 
maybe he wouldn't have said those things and maybe we would still have slavery in this country. I'd like to think not for all sorts of other reasons. But this notion that because you do something, I can't take offence and I can't tell you you're wrong because I might offend you, it will be the death of civilization. Because there are religions whose lack of proof, lack of accountability in their invisible man in the sky, plus their social norms are so ill at ease with our liberal society, women threw themselves under horses, horses? Horses in this country for the vote. But because you have an invisible man in the sky that's told you through a book written thousands of years ago that women are inferior and they shouldn't be allowed to vote, what? Where are we with this? Because either you're wrong or I'm wrong, but those two states don't coexist happily. So I'd rather have a society that knows what it is and is not afraid to say, here's who we are, this is what we believe. And even if it's not society, even if it's just people who are free to say, here's what I believe, then that is the price of freedom. And as offensive as I might find your invisible man in the sky who tells you to kill gay people, I am damn straight then that I have the right to offend you by telling you you're a fucking moron. Are you genuinely worried with the way that we are at the moment? Do you I'm, think I'm, it's a permanent I'm actually state less worried. Uh, I'm less worried under the current administration. Really? Yeah, because the Liberal Democrats come from that place. You know, if, if the fringe of the Labour Party is socialism, if the fringe of the furthest fringe of conservatism is some sort of fascism, possibly, or some sort of ultra-capitalism, whatever that would be, then the fringe, the far fringe of the Liberal Democrats is anarchy. It is personal responsibility. And actually, because neither of uh, none of the parties are their fringes, they are all way nearer the middle than their fringes, actually, that notion of social justice, that notion of social responsibility, that notion of what it is to be in a free society is something close to the hearts, hugely of Liberal Democrats, but also of Conservatives. So actually, the laws that they are looking to repeal are all about personal responsibility and freedom of expression. They're looking at reforming libel laws. They're looking at doing all of those things. The Labour Party, unfortunately, in order to appear tough and caring were much more likely to sneak in little laws here and there. You know, you can't organise a protest unless we say that's OK. What? So we can't hold the people who rule us to account without telling, asking the people that we're unhappy with whether we're allowed to tell them that we're unhappy with what they're doing? That's not a free... That's not even a... There is no way you can argue that as a benefit to society at all. Those things terrified me, but actually... <laughs> For all the reasons I might hate the Tories or at least be very unhappy with a lot of the friends that support their capacity to lead, actually a coalition with the Liberal Democrats means that they then have to focus on the things they have in common, which are things like freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And people who argue against this will say, oh, what, so you think the BNP should be allowed to stand up and say black people should you know, go back to ethnically where they come from? Yeah. Yeah, they should, but only because, as a thinking person, you're free to ignore them. You're free to see them then as the fuckwit they are. At the point that you don't hear what they're saying, you've got no idea who these fuckers are. So 
they exist in the shadows. Once they're free to say whatever they want, once you can actually stand and go, well, come on then, tell me. Because that's what the BNP are doing and were doing. They were saying, well, we would love to give you the facts. But unfortunately, because Nick Griffin was, I don't know, imprisoned for 28 days or cautioned he was given a criminal record for incitement to racial hatred, stuff like that. He would say to his supporters in darkened pubs, here's what we really think. But then when you put him on tape, he'd go, well, I can't tell you what I really think. Well, okay, under freedom of speech, you can. So let's drag you into the light, moron, and find out just how disgraceful you are. One of the things that really annoyed me about the election on Twitter when the coalition was formed, how many people were going, sucking up to David Cameron, are we? And, like, how many people were slagging him for it? Unbelievable. Because... If you voted Liberal Democrat in the last election, chances are the things that you wanted rid of were Trident. And now we've basically got Trident. So I think people felt let down by that. But the big thing for a lot of people was electoral reform. That was like the big headline thing. Well, unfortunately, (laughs) under proportional representation, the people of this country decided that they would rather have the blue team lead them than the red team or the yellow team. Nick Clegg did an honourable thing. He said, well, look, this is the biggest team, so really they have some kind of mandate to lead, so we should work with them because the people of this country have decided they like them more than the other lot. Even though I think it would be true that a lot of people would see the Liberal Democrats and Labour having a lot more in common, actually the right thing to do was to try and see what could be worked out with the people with the most votes. And under proportional representation, that is what would happen anyway. The the truth is that the coalition is the difference between do you want to eat a plate of shit or a plate of shit with a cherry on top? (laughs) Well, at least you're getting a cherry now. At least it takes out some of the really shitty aftertaste of the plate plate of shit. Absolutely. And, And the fact that people didn't get that. Oh, I did not vote Lib Dem to get the Tories. No, well, guess what? You didn't get the Tories. You got a Tory Lib Dem coalition. And unfortunately, that does mean that some Tory policies are going to be seen through. It may yet mean that... Things that the powers of the BBC or the you know the, the Tory desire to see the BBC vastly reduced, which is just something that I find distressing on all sorts of levels. But at least you've got people in there now who are shaping some of those decisions, who are <laughs> taking the edge off a lot of those things. Yeah. Um, so other stuff that you're doing. Well, you mentioned acting earlier. Mm. A new show you're doing. A kids show you're doing. Yes. Yeah, I mean, again, what the hell is going on? I come on this podcast, you ask me about stand-up, and I basically try and tell you I'm not very good at it and that I don't really know what I'm doing. And mainly the reason for that is that the things I do in the mainstream media require a certain lightness of touch. And I'm very happy doing those things. I don't feel the need to be angry or gobby or opinionated on those things because they're a different form whereas I think the form of stand-up because it is one of the last bastions of freedom of speech I think well this is the only place where I can get a lot of this stuff off my chest so I'm just going to go for it full-bodied but that doesn't mean that I don't want to do other things as well that I need to be that person all the time so it's really a kind of fairly schizophrenic existence not helped by the fact that I've just made this kids TV show called Hounded in which I play a presenter of a kids science show called Fun Lab who is then blasted into various parallel universes to save Earth from the evil Dr. Muhaha. This sounds a little like Doctor Who. 
It is basically, (laughs) yeah. I put the press release up when it first went out a few months ago and a chap called Gamewank on Twitter, who's a very funny (laughs) Glaswegian bloke, talks about video games. He put me a message back that just went, I read your press release, it should just have said, Doctor Who fan gets on (laughs) show. And there is a fair bit of that. I mean, it's proper, full-bodied, loads of CG, science fiction, but it's just a lot stupider and madder and realistically makes a lot less sense. Whereas Doctor Who is one of the finest examples of modern storytelling that we've been privileged enough to experience in this part of the 21st century. Is it going to be one of those kids shows? I've got my goddaughter over at the moment and so I've been watching a lot of children's telly and it's always that thing when you don't have kids and you watch children's telly where you're like, this is really good. Yeah. <laughs> this is really genuinely funny. When um, when they said about doing it and it was going to have all this CG and you know that some of the writers who were involved, I just thought, you know something, this is going to be the greatest kids' TV show probably of, of the last 25 years. People are going to be talking about this. This is this is going to be pretty freaking special because nobody's making kids' TV as good as this. Then I actually watched some kids' TV and there is some amazing things on. I've watched sort of five or six different little comedy shows, stuff with kids being spies. and So having thought, like, Hounded is going to smash it... I now realise if I'm lucky, it will be all right. (laughs) And I'm hoping people really love it. And it's got the propensity to really be special, I think. But what I don't think is it will be head and shoulders above the competition. Because some of the people working in children's, the level of imagination and the commitment to telling great stories is shockingly good. So when does that start? June the 11th. On CBC? Yeah. And then, so gigs. Yeah. You've got like a bunch coming up. The two that I wanted to mention, one is the Udderbelly on the yes. South Bank um, with Paul Zenon and I think it's Milton Jones. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a great show and it's a fantastic venue. So if you can get down there for that, come along. Okay. And Milton then, Jones is phenomenal and Paul Zenon's no slouch as it happens. And then the other one that you're doing is this lovely gig with Stuart Lee and Kevin Eldon and Simon Brodkin at Bush Hall. Yeah. Which is such a beautiful venue on uh, Friday the 18th of June. But generally for dates, you haven't got a website, have you? No, I just tell people, look at Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, so you've got your Twitter. If people just Google Rufus Hound live dates, there's a bunch that come up. I go to Chortle. Most people I'm doing things for will list their gigs on Chortle. So if you look at Rufus Hound on Chortle. Okay, but otherwise keep an eye on your Twitter. Yeah. Which is? Rufus Hound. Rufus, thanks so much. One word. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes marsha.com forward slash off the mic.